Chapter Six, Part One of God's Country and the Woman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. God's Country and the Woman by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Six, Part One. At the touch of Wayman's lips to her hair, Josephine lay very still, and Philip wondered if she had felt that swift, stolen caress. Almost he hoped that she had. The silken tresses, where for an instant his lips rested, seemed to him now like some precious communion cup in whose sacredness he had pledged himself. Yet had he believed that she was conscious of his act, he would have begged her forgiveness. He waited, breathing softly, putting greater sweep into his paddle, to keep Jean well behind them. Slowly the tremulous unrest of Josephine's shoulders ceased. She raised her head and looked at him, her lovely face damp with tears, her eyes shimmering like velvety pools through their mist. She did not speak. She was woman now, all woman. Her strength, the bearing which had made him think of her as a queen, the fighting tension which she had been under, were gone. Until she looked at him through her tears, her presence had been like that of some wonderful and unreal creature who held the control to his every act in the cup of her hands. He thought no longer of himself now. He knew that to him she had relinquished the mysterious fight under which she had been struggling. In her eyes he read her surrender. From this hour the fight was his, she told him without speaking and the glory of it all thrilled him with a sacred happiness so that he wanted to drop his paddle draw her close into his arms and tell her that there was no power in the world that could harm her now but instead of this he laughed low and joyously full into her eyes and her lips smiled gently back at him and so they understood without words behind them jean had been coming up swiftly and now they heard him break for an instant into the chorus of one of the wild half-breed songs, and Philip listened to the words of the chant, which is as old in the Northland as the ancient brass cannon and the crumbling fortress rocks at York Factory. Oh, ze big black bear, he go to court, he go to court a mate, he court to see south, he court to see north, he court to see shores of ze Indian lake. And then, in the moment's silence that followed, Philip threw back his head, and in a voice almost as wild and untrained as Jean Croisset's, he shouted back, Oh, the fur fleets sing on to Miskaming, as the ashen paddles bend, and the crews carouse at Rupert's house, at the sullen winter's end. But my days are gone where the lean wolf runs, and I ripple no more the path, where the grey geese race cross the red moon's face. From the white wind's arctic wrath. The suspense was broken, the two men's voices rising in their crude strength, sending forth into the still wilderness both triumph and defiance, brought the quick flush of living back into Josephine's face. She guessed why Jean had started his chant, to give her courage. She knew why Philip had responded, and now Jean swept up beside them a smile on his thin, dark face. "'The good virgin preserve us, monsieur, but our voices are like those of two beasts,' he cried. "'Great, true, fighting beasts,' whispered Josephine under her breath. "'How I would hate almost!' 
She had suddenly flushed to the roots of her hair. What? asked Philip. To hear men sing like women, she finished. As swiftly as he had come up, Jean and his canoe had sped on ahead of them. You should have heard us sing that up in our snow hut, when for five months the sun never sent a streak above the horizon, said Philip. At the end, in the fourth month, it was more like the wailing of a madman. McTavish died then, a young half-Scot of the Royal Mounted. After that Radisson and I were alone, and sometimes we used to see how loud we could shout it, and always when we came to those last two lines. She interrupted him. Where the grey geese race cross the red moon's face, and from the white wind's arctic wrath. Your memory is splendid, he cried admiringly. Yes, always when we came to the end of those lines, the white foxes would answer us from out of the barrens, and we would wait for the sneaking yelping of them before we went on. They haunted us like little demons, those foxes, and never once could we catch a glimpse of them during the long night. They helped to drive McTavish mad. He died begging us to keep them away from him. One day I was awakened by Radisson, crying like a baby, and when I sat up in my ice bunk, he caught me by the shoulders and told me that he had seen something that looked like the glow of a fire thousands and thousands of miles away. It was the sun, and it came just in time. And this other man you speak of, Radisson? she asked. He died two hundred miles back, replied Philip quietly. But that is unpleasant to speak of. Look ahead. Isn't that ridge of the forest glorious in the sunlight? She did not take her eyes from his face. Do you know, I think there is something wonderful about you, she said, so gently and frankly that the blood rushed to his cheeks. Some day I want to learn those words that helped to keep you alive up there. I want to know all of the story, because I think I can understand. There was more to it, something after the foxes yelped back at you. This, he said, and ahead of them Jean Croissant rested on his paddle to listen to Philip's voice. My seams gape wide and I'm tossed aside to rot on a lonely shore, while the leaves unmold like a shroud enfold, for the last of my trails are o'er. But I float in dreams on the Northland streams that never again I'll see, as I lie on the marge of the old portage with grief for company. A canoe, breathed the girl, looking back over the sunlit lake. Yes, a canoe, cast aside, forgotten, as sometimes men and women are forgotten, went down and out. Men and women who live in dreams, she added, and with such dreams, there must always be grief. There was a moment of old pain in her face, a little catch in her breath, and then she turned and looked at the forest ridge to which he had called her attention. We go deep into that forest, she said. We enter a creek just beyond where Jean is waiting for us, and Adair House is a hundred miles to the south and east. She faced him with a quick smile. My name is Adair, she explained. Josephine Adair. Is or was? he asked. Is, she said. Then, seeing the correlating challenge in his eyes, she added quickly, But only to you, to all others, I am Madame Paul Dracambo. Paul? Pardon me, I mean Philip. 
They were close to shore, and fearing that Jean might become suspicious of his tardiness, Philip bent to his paddle and was soon in the half-breed's wake. Where he had thought there was only the thick forest, he saw a narrow opening towards which Jean was speeding his canoe. Five minutes later they passed under a thick mass of overhanging spruce boughs into a narrow stream so still and black in the deep shadows of the forest that it looked like oil. There was something a little awesome in the suddenness and completeness with which they were swallowed up. Over their heads the spruce and cedar tops met and shut out the sunlight. On both sides of them the forest was thick and black. The trail of the stream itself was like a tunnel, silent, dark, mysterious. The paddles dipped noiselessly, and the two canoes travelled side by side. "'There are few who know of this break into the forest,' said Jean, in a low voice. "'Listen, monsieur.' From out of the gloom ahead of them there came a faint, oily splashing. "'Otter,' whispered Jean, "'the stream is like this for many miles, and it is full of life that you can never see because of the darkness.' something in the stillness and the gloom held them silent the canoes slipped along like shadows and sometimes they bent their heads to escape the low-hanging boughs josephine's face shone whitely in the dusk she was alert and listening when she spoke it was in a voice strangely subdued i love this stream she whispered it is full of life on all sides of us in the forest there is life the indians do not come here because they have a superstitious dread of this eternal gloom and quiet they call it the spirit stream even jean is a little oppressed by it see how closely he keeps to us i love it because i love everything that is wild listen did you hear that musa spoke jean out of the gloom close to them yes a moose she said here is where i saw my first moose so many years ago that it is time for me to forget she laughed softly i think i had just passed my fourth birthday you were four on the day we started ma josephine came jean's voice as his canoe shot slowly ahead where the stream narrowed and then his voice came back more faintly that was sixteen years ago to-day a shot breaking the dead stillness of the sunless world about him could not have sent the blood rushing through philip's veins more swiftly than jean's last words for a moment he stopped his paddle and leaned forward so that he could look close into josephine's face this is your birthday yes you ate my birthday cake she heard the strange happy catch in his breath as he straightened back and resumed his work mile after mile they wound their way through the mysterious subterranean-like stream seldom speaking and listening intently for the breaks in the death-like stillness that spoke of life now and then they caught the ghostly flutter of owls in the gloom like floating spirits back in the forest saplings snapped and brush crashed underfoot as caribou or moose caught the man-scent they heard once the panting sniffing inquiry of a bear close at hand and philip reached forward for his rifle for an instant josephine's hand fluttered to his own and held it back and the dark glow of her eyes said don't kill here there were no big-eyed moose-birds none of the mellow-throat sounds of the brush-barrow no harsh janglings of the gaudily-coloured jays in the timber fell the soft footpads of creatures with claw and fang marauders and outlaws of darkness 
light, sunshine, everything that loved openness of day were beyond. For more than an hour they had driven their canoes steadily on, when, as suddenly as they had entered it, they slipped out from the cavernous gloom into the sunlight again. Josephine drew a deep breath as the sunlight flooded her face and hair. "'I have my own name for that place,' she said. "'I call it the Valley of Silent Things. It is a great swamp, and they say that the moss grows in it so deep that caribou and deer walk over it without breaking through.' The stream was swelling out into a narrow, finger-like lake that stretched for a mile or more ahead of them and she turned to nod her head at the spruce and cedar shores with their colorings of red and gold, where birch and poplar and ash splashed vividly against the darker background. "'From now on it is all like that,' she said, lake after lake, most of them as narrow as this, clear to the doors of Adair House. It is a wonderful lake country, and one may easily lose oneself. Hundreds of lakes, I guess.' running through the forest like Venetian canals. "'I would not be surprised if you told me you had been in Venice,' he replied. "'Today is your birthday, your twentieth. Have you lived all those years here?' End of chapter 6, part 1